Well, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to begin a study tonight of one of the grandest experiments that's ever taken place in human history. And the reason is because of who did the experimenting and what the experiment was done upon. This is the great experiment of the greatest mind outside of the Lord Jesus, the greatest mind that has ever been put to test. The wisest man who had ever lived, the most rich man, the the most wealthy man who had lived up to this point, the man with the most power. And he explores something throughout the first 12 verses, or 11 verses rather, of chapter 2, that's going to be mind-numbing. It's going to be so contemporary, you're going to wonder, did someone write this last week? Or is this really thousands of years old? Follow along as I read just the first two verses. This is Solomon speaking who said, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So, enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure or fun, what does it accomplish? In the next few verses, Solomon takes his wisdom that was given to him by God and the wisdom that he had gained by experience under the providence of God, and he applies that wisdom, that, that keen mind, that incredible exegetical ability to look into life and discern what it has to offer. He applies all that God had given him and all that he had accomplished and experienced, and he applies that to see what in the world does the world have to offer? What? What can the world give me that might bring me satisfaction? He tries fun. We'll look at that tonight. He tries intoxication. He tries materialism. He tries money. He tries entertainment. He tries sex. And he tries competition. And if I can go ahead and give you the the conclusion before we even start the introduction... Look at verse 10 and, verses 10 and 11. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity. Havel, Hebel, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that just means Transitory, there for a moment and gone. Steam off a cup of coffee, there and then gone. And striving after the wind. And there was no prophet under the sun. That's where he's going to end up. How he gets there is really incredible because how he gets there are the same treadmills that we find ourselves on. They're the same pleasures that people continue to test. They're the same dead ends that people keep driving into. They're the same cliffs that people keep driving off of. Tonight I want to look at verse 2 specifically in the light of verse 1 that we began looking at last time. I said of laughter, literally I said of fun, of of merriment, of partying, uh, uh, and, and of pleasure. 
I said it's madness, and what does it accomplish? Quicksand has been uh, uh, an intrigue of so many people. I remember being terrified of quicksand because I used to watch, when I was a kid, all the old black and white Tarzan movies. And somehow there was quicksand in every Tarzan movie. And I was convinced every time I went out in the woods in Tennessee to play that there was around the corner some big pit that was a yawning, gaping death trap that dared me to walk into it. I was terrified of quicksand. I looked up quicksand. It's a dangerous sand, a deep mass of loose, wet sand that sucks down any heavy object falling onto its surface. It's also used as a metaphor. Quicksand is used metaphorically as a dangerous situation, a hidden trap from which escape is difficult or even impossible. What Solomon talks about tonight is the quicksand of hedonism. The quicksand of fun. Hedonism is a sort of quicksand of the soul. If you step into it, it will suck you in and pull you down and pull you under. And very few who begin to actively pursue hedonistic fun, hedonistic pleasures, have any idea what they're getting into, and they don't know how hard it is to get out of it. We uh, noted that great theologian in our last study, Mick Jagger, who said, I can't Get no what? Satisfaction. How do you know that song? Oh, man, such worldly people. No, that's... Can't get any satisfaction. And remember what he did? He tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he tried. I did that last time, and no one really got it. You have to know the song to know what that means, right? He says, I tried, and I tried four times, by the way. He couldn't find satisfaction. That's, in essence, a summary of what Solomon is going to find in these experiments. Now, I want to talk to you for a moment about this hedonistic uh, culture that we found ourselves in. I did a little research, and in fact, I found some some new research uh, this afternoon on one of the most um, expressive forms of hedonism that is something I didn't see coming on when uh, when I was a kid. It's something I didn't see even as a teenager. And it is the... um, the hedonistic pursuit of, drumroll, video gaming. Now, I want to talk about video gaming for a minute because it used to be when we talked about video gaming, we were talking about kids. However, the latest statistics, which were just released here in 2014, say that the average age of a video gamer is 33. 33. Now, that's the average. The largest group is actually um, between, uh, let me find it here. It's between, oh, I just lost it. It's between 32 and 39. So that means included in that average, you're pushing 40 years old as a video gamer. I have to admit that I I went into... um, a GameStop, you know this store? Have you seen this store? It's a video gaming uh, a store. And I went in there um, and I saw some of these mid-30-year-olds. And it was one sad moment. I just felt like I needed to get out and, and, and go, you know, um, hit something or, or act like an adult. Or I, I don't know if that's very adult-like, but I, I just felt <laughs> like this is... This is the most childish place I've ever been in in my life. To see some 35-year-olds in there talking about high score on Halo. And I went, what? 
they were, they were talking about strategies and stuff. And these, these were adult men talking about games. It talks about, it's actually an illustration of what our, our culture is actually pursuing in its pursuit of hedonism, of fun. I was reading uh, again uh, from uh, uh, Mark Penn's book, uh, it's a few years old now, but it's so uh, insightful. It's called Microtrends. He's one of the leading pollsters in our country. And this is what he said. This was the largest jump, by the way. He's, he's writing around um, 2006 here. He says, um, the average video computer game player is 30 years old and up. And just four years before, the average was 24. So in four years, between 2002 and 2006, the average gamer was not only, was used to be 24, and then it went up to 33, and it stayed about 33 as an average. He goes on this really insightful chapter. Let me read you a couple quotes. He said, the bottom line is this, what used to be a fringe hobby for teens and geeks and freaks is now utterly mainstream as an activity for American grown-ups. He goes on, at the broader level, grown-up gamers represent one more blur in the distinction between adults and children. Sure, kids have sex younger than they used to and call adults by their first names, but increasingly, it is grown-ups who watch cartoons. In all these extra hours that adults are playing video games, they are not working They are not reading. They are not volunteering. They are not pursuing other community bettering activities that used to be the hallmark of adult citizenship. Indeed, they are living in an imaginary community, end quote. You know, when you put all that together, it it really is a frightening reality. It's just an illustration, but the illustration is this. Fun is something that's so worth pursuing to so many people that they're even willing not to be responsible, not to grow up to enjoy fun. Now, I'm I'm beating up on the video gaming industry uh, for a moment, but but all of us have pleasures and fun and and things that are are activities that could be entertainment, although he's going to deal with entertainment as a separate category in a few verses. And we look at these things as escapes as typically ways to enjoy the moment as an alternative to being responsible. It's exactly what Solomon is talking about here. He, he didn't really have any responsibilities at this time. Had all the money he wanted, had all the power he wanted, didn't really need to accomplish anything. He was the king. And so he applies himself and says, let me, let me test pleasure. Let me test fun, partying, uh, pleasure, this, this, this idea of amusement in the moment and see what it has. Now, going back to chapter 2, verse 1 for a moment, I want you to look at very carefully at the, his, his, um, um, his pursuit of hedonism. He, he says, um, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. He's talking to himself. Hedonism is, is seductively selfish. Very few people pursue hedonism for the enjoyment of anyone else. It's selfish. I said to myself, I will test you. So, then what does he say? Enjoy who? Enjoy yourself. It's all about enjoying himself. Look also at the test. He says, I want to test myself with pleasure. The 
The Hebrew word there is nasa, to try, to test, to prove, to put to the test. Then he talks about pleasure, happiness, gladness. What happens outside of painful work? That's the idea. And then he says, enjoy yourself. Just enjoy yourself. Which is another way of saying, do what you want, not what you should. Just enjoy yourself. Now, before we get too far into this, we have to understand that there's nothing wrong with enjoying yourself. There's even nothing wrong with, I guess, a, a video game as long as it's not crossing any moral lines. There's, there's nothing wrong with taking a walk to enjoy yourself or looking at a sunset to enjoy yourself or going to a friend's house or having a party. That's not what he's saying. Look at the last phrase there in chapter 2, verse 1. Behold, it too was futility. There's our word again. We're going to keep coming back to it. Havel, just there and gone. The party always ends. The ride at the amusement park always stops. It's transitory. It's unreliable. It's temporal. It doesn't last. It brings temporary, momentary pleasure, but no lasting satisfaction. Then he drills down. That's the general statement. And he looks specifically in verse 2. He calls it laughter and of pleasure. This is another way of describing just having a party, getting people together, uh, um, doing stuff that makes you laugh and, and forget bad times and forget trouble and look only at what brings you momentary pleasure. In a word, it's fun. Fun has become the idol of our age in so many ways. Now listen, a little footnote. I love going to Worlds of Fun, to Six Flags, to all these amusement parks. I like riding the bigger, the faster, or the, the, whatever it is, I, I like it. I, one of my sons and I really like it a lot. And it's just, I, it's an enjoyable thing. There's nothing wrong with going to the park. But when you go in the, to the park, and you begin to think this is gonna last and this is gonna bring me satisfaction, that's a problem. Think about this for a moment. Just about everybody ponders the problem of pain. If you were to talk to any theologian, they've all uh, come to a point where they had to wrestle with, any pastor has had to talk about and preach on the problem of pain, the problem of theodicy. How is there a good God in the midst of an evil world? How do we wrestle with problems and pain? Injustice, suffering, pain, inequity. These have become the stuff of theologians and philosophers who make their living trying to answer them. But can I suggest that pain and trouble is not the real problem? In fact, pain, difficulty, works a, a mysterious work in our lives. Pain has a unique way of revealing who we truly are. It brings out the best or the worst in us. It's a mirror to our soul. It reveals and reflects what we're really like. It unearths and puts on display our theology. You want to find out what you're really like? Find yourself in the midst of a tragedy or a difficulty and you'll know what you're really like. I want to suggest to you through Solomon's experience that the problem of life is not really pain. Our biggest problem is pleasure. What we do and seek for fun has a numbing effect on our spiritual 
sensibilities and receptivity. Who seeks God in desperation when everything is going great? Who seeks God at the top of the roller coaster? Well, maybe you do seek God at the top of the roller coaster. <laughs> Who seeks God at the end of the roller coaster and says, this has been a bad day, I, wanna, I, I really need your help? Very few people. We're in the middle of the life of Solomon, the richest, wisest, most knowledgeable person who had ever lived before or after except the incarnate God himself. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he's reflecting at the end of his life back on these experiments, back on this waywardness, back on this time when, when these, the women in his life, remember 1 Kings chapter 11, had turned his heart from God himself, from Yahweh to their God, to pleasure and to vanity. His conclusion is, is that there's no profit. So he tries these experiments. He says, come now, I want to test you with pleasure. He, he says, okay, let's look at the world. I've got all of this apparatus, all of this mental ability, all this horsepower spiritually to evaluate. So let's evaluate. So the first thing he tries is fun, is pleasure. Now just for a moment, you can turn here if you want or you can just listen. I want to show you a little bit about Solomon's fun, a little bit about his parties. In 1 Kings chapter 4, it's one of those verses that you typically just read over real fast, but listen to it in the context of Solomon's pursuit of fun and pleasure. Now, all of these, these measurements uh, will mean something to some of you, but I'll, I'll stack it up for you in the end. Solomon's provision, this is 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22. Solomon's provision, or literally, literally his, his spread, it's the, the Hebrew word is his bread, his his banquet table, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores, measurements of fine flour, and 60 cores of meal. You say, well, how much is that? That's the bread part. Whatever that bread is, here's what it was matched up with. Let's look at the protein part. 10 fat oxen. This is every day, every day at his house. This was his party. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, so we're up to 30 cows at this point. A hundred sheep besides deer. I love venison, so did he. Gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Historians and Hebrew scholars tell us that that was enough to feed 1,500 to 2,000 people. Every day. You say, why would he feed that many people every day? Back to chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2. I said of laughter and of pleasure. It's madness. What does it accomplish? He tried merriment is the word. Partying, uh, getting everybody together, laughing, forgetting his problems and pursuing his own little party. Solomon knew how to throw a party. Solomon knew how to have a good time. Solomon and his friends feasted and partied, exchanged jokes. They laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. This was the comedy that never ended. He tested laughter. What was his conclusion? It's an interesting um, tension here in, in the Hebrew language. 
I said of laughter, it's the opposite. It's craziness. It's madness. You would think that laughing is good. He says, no, no, laughing is crazy. It it doesn't bring anything. And then he says, nextly, of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Let's be clear. Solomon is not saying that laughing is wrong, that having fun is wrong. I, I enjoy having fun just like the next guy. I love laughing like laughing at myself. It seems to be one of the habits of my family. <clears throat> His question, though, is, is very insightful at the end of the verse. What does it accomplish? What do you get out of it? He doesn't say it's morally reprehensible to have a party or to laugh or to have pleasure. He just says, what, what's, what do you really get out of it in the end? Which is another way of saying, what stress are we putting on our pursuit of a hedonistic pleasure that we really expect will bring us lasting satisfaction? Let me take a tour with you. Look over at Proverbs chapter 14. Just a really quick tour. <clears throat> Remember, Solomon is cataloging these principles in the book of Proverbs earlier in his life. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. And the end of joy may be grief. You know what he's saying? You can go watch a comedy. You can hear a good joke. You can go to a party. But if there's a troublesome issue on your heart, laughter doesn't make it evaporate, does it? The laughter always stops. It always comes back. Look over at chapter 21 of Proverbs. Verse 17. Now we find that, remember I said there was an, uh, uh, an idea of being respon- irresponsible by partying and laughter. He says, he who loves pleasure will become a poor man. And he who loves wine and oil will not become rich. What is he saying? If you set your life toward parties and having fun, you will not set your life toward making money and being responsible. It's really simple. And then back in Ecclesiastes, just skip over to chapter 7, that great chapter that we're going to have a lot of um, interesting study and discussion when we get to. Look at Ecclesiastes 7 verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Did you hear what he just said? He tested pleasure. He tested laughter. What's his conclusion? Sorrow is actually better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Almost just the opposite of what he said in Proverbs, right? Oh, you can, you can have fun. You can laugh. But it still doesn't mask problems. He said, actually, sorrow is better because even when your, faith, when, when your heart um, is sad, you can find happiness in this context if you're pursuing God. Look at verse 6, chapter 7. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. If you've ever burnt, thorn bushes is, is very uh, small and, and dry twigs. When you put that under a pot and you uh, put it on fire, it cracks, it pops, it burns very quickly. He says, so is the laughter of a fool. It just doesn't last. It doesn't accomplish anything. So with that study as a backdrop, I want to back up and paint really a simple theology of pain, uh, excuse me, of fun and pleasure, maybe a way to put all this into perspective. Let me give you some words that I think may help 
to kind of uh, process this in a way that's practical. Um, number one is to recall, is to recall. What do you mean by that? It, to trust Solomon, recall what he said, listen to his experiment. We've said over and over, you can listen to his experience and learn, or you can have his experiences and learn from your own, and that's always more painful. Actively recalling what Solomon's lessons are in this book, actually learning and applying truth, measuring our growth, thinking through and talking through with others, what are we really pursuing? I, uh, I'm always amazed at how, how shallow our conversations can be. There's nothing wrong with talking about the weather and sports and things that interest us. But I think this idea of recalling is to listen to Solomon and to really start talking about amongst ourselves, what, what do we learn from this guy? What do we learn from the wisest man in the world who, who applied all of his wisdom to this experiment? Do we trust and believe his conclusions? This is simply, recalling is simply a way of saying, uh, do you believe God in his word? Do you recall the lessons that Solomon is teaching us? Number two, reflect. Reflect. Think about what a trap the world is and its amusements are. I want to read you a quote, and then I'll tell you when it's from, where it's from, okay? Listen to this, this older sage, this wiser man talking about worldly amusements. This is what he said. This, too, is one of the great reasons why worldly amusements are so objectionable. It may be difficult in some instances to show that, that they are in themselves positively unscriptural and wrong, but there is little difficulty in showing that the tendency of almost all of these worldly amusements is most injurious, it makes an injury, to the soul. They sow the seeds of an earthly and sensual frame of mind. They war against the life of faith. They promote an unhealthy and unnatural craving after their excitement. They minister to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. They dim the view of heaven and of eternity. They give a false color to the things of time. They make the heart unfit for private prayer and scripture reading and calm communion with God. The man who mingles in these worldly amusements is like one who gives Satan advantage in the ground of war. He has a battle to fight. He gives his enemy, the Satan, the help of sun, wind, and hill. It would be strange indeed if he did not find himself continually overcome. That was written by J.C. Ryle over 120 years ago in his book, Thoughts for Young Men. It's the same issue as we're facing today. Are these pursuits of pleasure injurious to the soul? Now, I know what you're saying. Wow, our pastor's a fuddy dud. No fun. God probably goes home and sucks on lemons all night. What, what kind of, what are you talking about? Number three, rejoice. Number three, rejoice. One of the main points of the book of Ecclesiastes is to enjoy yourself 
and have fun, especially according to Ecclesiastes 11.9, while you're young. Rejoice, young man, in the days of, of your youth before the, you get old and it's harder to have fun. Rejoice. Inside the covers of your Bible. Without making those things to try to bear the weight of eternal satisfaction. Eat a cheeseburger. Have a hot fudge sundae with extra hot fudge. Ladies, get your nails done. Go to an amusement park. Watch a football game. Ride a bike. Walk in the rain. Just have a conversation with a three-year-old and see what you, what you find out. Take a swim. Ski a mountain in Denver. Run, run a 10K, run a marathon, run a half marathon. Buy an ink pen that you like to write with, a fountain pen especially. Iron your favorite shirt, your your blouse, a skirt, wear it and enjoy it. Listen to music that you like, go to a museum. Visit an old graveyard and just see what you learn. Get up early and watch the sun rise. Find someone you love and watch a sun set. Kiss your spouse. Play a round of golf. Have a good cup of coffee or a good cup of tea. Have a Krispy Kreme donut that's hot. <laughs> it, the, the, the point is, these things, if you look at them as, as little blessings of life that God gives to say, you think this is good? You think this is good? Wait till heaven. And we say, this is good. And I enjoy this, but this is not heaven. And it will not occupy my full undivided attention as pressing it for satisfaction. If anyone ought to enjoy fun and pleasure and parties on this planet, it ought to be a Christian who can praise God for them as gifts. Solomon's point is, when I tested this pleasure to see if it would actually, remember what he says down in verses uh, 10 and 11. If it would give me something that lasted, if it wouldn't be vanity, it didn't pass the test. So enjoy life, but enjoy it as gifts, those pleasures, as gifts of God, not as the end. It's, it's enjoying the giver more than the gift. Number four, remember. Remember that there's an accounting. Remember that there is one day when we will give an account for all that we've tested, all that we've pursued, all that we've enjoyed on this planet. No room for irresponsible here. No room for sinful fun. The list I just read has to be tempered by by the coming judgment. It's okay to enjoy the blessings of this life, but not to stress them to the point where they are, where our soul is disappointed if we don't get them. Hebrews 4.13, memorize it. It says very clearly that we have a God with whom we have to do. To remember that he's always there, always watching. We're always accountable. Our biblical principles govern our enjoyment of life, which tells us the kind of things we enjoy, right? The way we enjoy them. It's coming when we look at entertainment. It tells us the kind of television shows and movies that we, we watch and are entertained by. The kind of music that we listen to. All of those things matter. If we cannot give God thanks for those things that we are enjoying, 
then we ought not be doing them. There will be an accounting. Number five, recognize. Recognize. Recognize what? That there is a greater joy, a greater fun, a greater pleasure to be found outside this world. It's interesting, uh, Susan, that um, when you uh, were talking earlier in your testimony, the verse that I had written down on this is Psalm 16, 11. This is interesting. You remember what, uh, what it says? I hope that you, you know it. I hope you have it memorized. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is not just joy. You know what it says? In your presence is fullness of joy. Absolute satisfaction of joy. And then he says, in your right hand, there are pleasures, not temporal, not havel, not fleeting, not steam off a cup of coffee. Pleasures, how long? Forever. They don't end. Recognize that there is going to be a time when the party doesn't stop, when the ride doesn't end, when it's pure, think about this, pure, unmitigated, never-ending laughter and joy and worship in heaven. There will be a time. I don't know if we sleep in heaven. A lot of theories about that. Some people say, oh, sleep is a gift. We're going to sleep in heaven. Maybe so. Maybe there'll be time for a nap. But all I have to think about it is there's so much to enjoy. You don't want to go to bed and you never get tired. God has created the human heart to enjoy his creation. And in heaven, we are going to enjoy God, but we are going to enjoy his gifts to the extent that they're satisfying because they are attached without any blurring to the giver. Pleasure's forever. Just, I mean, wrap your mind around that. It never stops. So let's back up and join Solomon in this. What are we doing in pursuing fun, the party, and the pleasure in this world, amusements in this world that distracts us, that takes our eye off the ball, that that moves us away from seeing them as gifts of God and sees them as pleasures to be pursued and enjoyed in and of themselves? Isaac Watts, uh, great hymn writer and poet, has a hymn. Let me just, I'm usually not a, you know, in the sermon with a poem guy. This is a, this is a good poem. He says, come, we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. See where his pleasure and his, his joy is, is anchored. The sorrows of the mind be banished from the place. Religion never was designed to make our pleasure less. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad. The God that rules on high and thunders when he please, that rides upon the stormy sky and manages the seas, this awful, awesome God is ours, our Father and our love. He shall send down his heavenly powers to carry us above. There we shall see his face and never, never sin. There from the rivers of his grace drink endless pleasures in. 
The sons of grace have found glory begun below. Celestial fruits on earthly ground from faith and hope may grow. You hear what he's saying? This is just the seed of what's going to be great one day. The bill of Zion, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk on golden streets. Then let our songs abound and every tear be dry. We are marching through Emmanuel's ground to fairer worlds on high. That's just a great lyrical way that Isaac Watts is echoing Solomon's test. Enjoy this world. This isn't the stop. This is just a hallway with previews of what we're going to enjoy in heaven. Here's what's interesting. Fun. All these, these things that, that, that God's given us. Um, competition, uh, entertainment, sex, money, materialism. Intoxication, all of these have seeds that when expressed in a godly way in heaven will bring satisfaction when it's from God. You say, wow, fun? There's going to be no funner place than, than heaven. Intoxication, Revelation says, we will be, the phrase is used is intoxicated with praise. In other words, our mind will be so enraptured with God, we will be overwhelmed with that. Materialism, walking on gold, that's going to be a, the, the sidewalk. Uh, money, we won't need money. Entertainment, we'll join the celestial beings and sing, say, chant, holy, holy, holy. Sex, you say, what do you do with that? It's interesting that um, heaven is called the great consummation. It's the great satisfaction. Competition, the first will be last, the last will be first. Everyone will be happy with their place. Solomon says down in verse 11, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was no profit. Here's it is, under the sun. What have we said about under the sun? It's a designation that means this side of Eden and this side of heaven. It's the life we live. So what's the answer? Where do we go from there? We appreciate this planet as little foretastes of glory, divine, the blessings that we're going to enjoy. We attach those blessings to God. We don't enjoy anything that we cannot thank God for. And we remember that it's the gospel, that it's Christ, that it's the Lord Jesus, his death, his, his resurrection that brings us into the greatest experience of every joy because that's, who will bring us eternal satisfaction? If Jesus is not attractive to us in heaven, there's a serious theological gap we need to fill in. Father, these are short and sweet lessons that are just the beginnings of what Solomon experimented with.